0: This week on Emerge Mobile First, a conversation with Rand Fishkin, founder and wizard of Moz.
1: I think that philosophy over time has built up, you know, a lot of goodwill. It builds up up people who know who you are and know what you do. They like you, they trust you, they respect you, they want to amplify you. They're rooting for your success.
0: Welcome to Mobile First. You'll find bonus tools, expanded information, and key takeaways on our website, emergemobilefirst.com. For a quick and effective way to level up your mobile strategy, again, that's emergemobilefirst.com. Rand Fishkin uses the ludicrous title Wizard of Moz. He's founder and former CEO of Moz, board member at presentation software startup Haiku Deck co-author of A Pair of Books on SEO, and co-founder of Inbound.org. Rand's an unsavable addict of all things content, search, and social on the web, from his multiple blogs to Twitter, Google+, Facebook, LinkedIn, and a shared Instagram account. In his minuscule spare time, he likes to gallivant around the world with his wife and then read about it in her superbly enjoyable travel blog, The everwhere So Rand, thanks for joining us. I'm really excited to have you here. I'm thrilled to join you,
1: Jordan. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and as I mentioned earlier, you know, I'm a serial entrepreneur and I'm very passionate about how and why things work. And, you know, so I'd love to start out
1: with what you're most passionate about, Rand. I think it's probably helping people. I really like helping people succeed in their professional careers, as well as in their, you know, startup ventures or entrepreneurial ventures. I love helping marketers and folks who do marketing and lots of people in lots of aspects of their lives, but this is, this has sort of been my specialty. So I I try and help people where I'm best at it.
0: So as the founder of Moz, right, you've been doing this for a long time. So you've been helping people for a very long time. What was kind of a thing that inspired this calling to help people? You know, was it something through your upbringing? Was it you know something around your environment? Like, what was it?
1: I'm not sure I can easily identify that. You know, one of the things that's kind of odd about me and about Moz is that I'm very much an accidental entrepreneur. You know, I dropped out of college and started working with my mom because I didn't want to get a real job and just wanted to build websites for her clients. And then that sort of evolved into me doing SEO because we couldn't afford to pay our SEO contractors and we owed people this work. And I started an SEO blog because I was frustrated with, you know, the opacity and secretiveness of the SEO world and the search engines. And that sort of tumbled into a business of SEO consulting. And then we released some tools that turned out to be a big hit and were contracted by some venture capital folks and raised some money. And I became CEO. And You know, it all sort of snowballed into something. It was never an intentional, hey, I want to build a software business that helps professional marketers understand search engines and organic web results and how to get rankings. It was really one step led to another.
0: Got it. So, you know, and kind of unpacking that, it sounds like, you know, the one thing that where you had maybe that person-to-person interaction was that SEO consulting do you think that it was maybe something around that time period or, or that activity that
1: allowed you to have that connection and see that result? I'm not sure. I, it could have been even earlier, right, when we were building websites and mm-hmm. I sort of had this feeling of accomplishment when we'd put out a site that truly helped people accomplish their goals. You know, I was big into, in my very early career, big into uh, like usability and user experience design in, in websites not which is not to say i made beautiful highly usable websites only that that was an aspiration and i think that might have sown some early seeds but you know you could be right it might be something from childhood or or my upbringing my environment i mean you know i live in seattle washington i basically lived here my whole life and seattle is certainly a very you know tightly knit community it's it's far less I would say, impersonal or antagonistic than some of the big East Coast cities. Mm -hmm. There's more of a personal friendship, camaraderie sort of culture than there is in the Bay Area or Los Angeles where you find, you know, I find when I go there very often, you know, entrepreneurs are tightly connected to one another, but it's really what can you do for me? And if nothing, then I am not interested in talking to you as opposed to I really care about who you are and I don't I don't particularly care whether we can help each other directly. I just want to build a relationship. And if you're my kind of person, then I want to spend time with you. Seattle's a very non-transactional relationship type of town. and, And maybe that influenced me too.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. And I can, I mean, that resonates a lot with me. I'm also from the Pacific Northwest out here in Portland, Oregon. Nice. Yeah, and that's something that I've noticed too when traveling. It's just the different culture and the vibe, you know, in the different parts of the U.S. So I can
1: totally see that you know, Portland has this like feel of a city where it's all about the degree to which you can do your craft better than anyone else. Right. And it's not very competitive. It's more like a self-competition in Portland, right? Like, can I make an even better Thai style chicken wing? You know, can (laughs) I make, can I make an even better underground golf course that's pirate neon themed? I <laughs> have you know, have and you, I, done I love you, that, you
0: did, you've been there then you've, you've done oh, yeah. the pirate theme golf. <laughs> nice. I totally get that. And uh, when I say Portland, I'm actually from Hood River. Most people just don't know what that is. So I say, Portland. oh, yeah, Portland. sure. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. So uh, also from a very small town, family oriented. So I, I can totally get that. And it's funny how you characterize Portland because I totally see that too now.
1: Yeah. I feel like cities, you, you know, my wife and I travel a, a tremendous amount. I speak at a lot of conferences and events on behalf of Moz. And my wife is a a travel writer. And so when we go to destinations, we sort of try and get this sense for what is this city's thing? You know, Boston has this feeling around uh, education, like where did you go to school? New York has this thing around, you know, how much money do you have? Los Angeles, it's who do you know? San Francisco, it's, uh, you know, what company, what world changing company are you building or working at? Seattle for a long time was like, what outdoor activity do you do? <laughs> but I think that's slowly shifting as Seattle gets a little more like the Bay Area, which eh, has its pluses and minuses.
0: And so, in, you know, in your travels, you know, talking about the journey, can you maybe walk us through some of the path you took, you know, from, you know, the accidental entrepreneurship that you called it, you know, kind of falling into it and how that scaled and you
1: know, achieved what it is today? Yeah. So I think a big part of our success turned out to be this philosophy of helping people without asking for anything in return. Uh, So, you know, Moz historically and today has always put out a tremendous amount of content and resources and webinars and events and uh, videos like the Whiteboard Friday video series that I do every week. And Mm -hmm. those things have all been free. I mean, Technically, we charge for the events, but they are break even. Right? We don't make any money on them, so they're they tend to be much less expensive than than conferences uh-huh. uh, of similar size. I think that philosophy over time has built up, you know, a lot of goodwill. It builds up. It builds up people who know who you are and know what you do. They like you. They trust you. They respect you. They want to amplify you. They're rooting for your success. And I think that's really the the audience of several million people who visit Moz every month, a good portion of those people turn into, you know, raving fans. And that is, you know, that's been humbling and wonderful to see. And it's also what helped us build a great business. You know, Moz has no salespeople, right? I should correct that. We have a tiny sales team on one of our other products, Moz Local, for like enterprise. But again, they don't go out and sell. They just respond to incoming inquiries. And so It's very much for us about driving a lot of traffic and building up that trust and authority and then converting those people through showing them what we have to offer without pushing them into that realm. One of the most interesting stats that that I talk about with regard to Moz is how visitor engagement ties to customer lifetime value. So for example, if you come to Moz because you searched for SEO tools, right? Say you're a marketing professional, you're looking for SEO tools, great. You search for SEO tools and you click on an ad that you see at the top of Google, you know, a little AdWords ad that takes you to Moz and you sign up for our tools right then and there and give give us your credit card. Chances are in the first one to three months of your membership, you'll cancel and you won't come back. Statistically speaking, that's highly likely. Compare and contrast that with someone who, Finds us via a tweet, and then comes back to us uh, via Google search, and then bookmarks us, and reads the blog for a few months, and signs up after you know 14, 15 visits to the website. Chances are very good that they'll be with us 17, 18 months of a subscription or longer, right? So their lifetime value, you know, to Moz as the business is just huge compared to someone who only visits us once or twice. And that is pretty linear. So the more you visit and engage with us before you sign up, the better a customer you're going to be when you do sign up. And thus, we bias to not push our software and our subscription onto folks, but rather to let them sort of discover it and take their time and come to us when they're ready.
0: I love that. And I actually wanted to talk about one of the quotes that you have on your Twitter page because I'm, like I mentioned before, a huge fan And checked all the channels too, because I know that you guys are (laughs) tracking all of those. So the quote that I think actually mirrors a lot of what you're saying is, you know, that you have pinned on Twitter, best way to sell something, don't sell anything, earn the awareness, respect and trust of those who might buy. So I really, I really love that quote. And I wanted to bring that up. But I mean, you've already drilled that into our heads already so far. So I think it's really cool.
1: I, I thought it was funny, right? So today there I, I was in a Twitter conversation around that exactly. You know, it was sort of a not not too serious argument. I'd say more just a, you know, fundamental like like a disagreement of approaches with this guy, Austin Allred, right, who was tweeting at me earlier today and said people underestimate how far you can get with brute force, cold calling, emailing, etc. You could make a company successful on that alone. And of course that is in complete, total opposition to the way I like to do things. But I'm actually, I'm not going to argue that you can be successful either way. I think that it is true that you can. I obviously bias to, you know, that earn trust and awareness and then let people find what you have to sell versus push it, cold call it, brute force it. Just not my model.
0: Well, there's also a lot of variables and context to consider that, you know, it's the tactic is one thing, but a lot of the strategy and interdependencies of other things, you know, to consider for that. So yeah, I want to spend some time talking about where Moz is at and what you plan to do with it. Because a company that doesn't have salespeople, and they can do what it's done organically, you know, what are your current barriers to scale? Like
1: what's that thing holding you back currently? So I have this theory, I think it's pretty solid. And that is Startups inherit the strengths and weaknesses of their founders. And I think my strengths are in content, they're in marketing, they're in building relationships. And I think my weaknesses are software engineering and technical operations. And those are Moz's weaknesses as well. You know, I haven't been CEO here for a little over three years now. But Mm -hmm. despite that, I I think, you know, Moz in its infancy inherited that fundamental weakness and thus we have always had the promise of a phenomenal product and phenomenal data but never achieved it and i think that is uh, at the core of what holds us back you know my my hope is that Moz spends the next 3 4 years investing in the quality of our engineering and software Creation processes and in the iteration of our products. I think that will have by far the best return for the company because, you know, very frankly, I mean, 3 million people are visiting the website every month. They are deeply interested in SEO. I think if and when that product uh, delivers on the promise that it has, and it's, you know, it's a good product, but not a great one today, right? Um, I think you could argue that. Let's say there's seven or eight key vectors by which you judge an SEO software suite. And Moz is probably a leader in two or three. Uh, We're sort of reasonably competitive against the leaders in the market in another two or three, and then we're pretty weak in the last two or three. And I think that the weakness on the data side, on the stability side, on the quality side, really impacts us very harshly. You know, one of the fascinating things about a self-service SaaS business, software as a service business, which is what Moz is, mm-hmm. is that if we take, you know, our monthly churn rate today is like uh, maybe around 5%, maybe 5.2%. You take that down to 4.2% and Moz grows another 25 or $30 million in the next three years right? So it's just, a, there's a right. crazy, crazy amount of growth to be had just by making the product a little stickier and better, making it help people more, um, helping them for a longer period. And I think that's the right thing to do too. So mm-hmm. that's where I hope the company invests a lot of its effort. I will say that, you know, the influence that that I exert is not always uh, the winner at the, at the strategic <laughs> high level of the company. Right. You know, I'm one of, five board members that Moz has today. And I'm not the CEO, as I mentioned. And so, you know, I try and exert influence, but I don't, uh, I don't control everything about the company, but I, I hope they invest in this. Right.
0: And so I wholeheartedly believe that the organizational awareness is is key. And it sounds like Moz has that awareness that knows kind of some of these points, these tipping points. And when you were sitting in that chair, you know, how did you determine what to focus on? How, how did you prioritize some things over other things to understand what you needed to do to scale to that next level?
1: Yeah, for me, I think this was actually a another point of occasionally big strength and occasionally big weakness. Uh, and that was, I relied almost exclusively on my own personal intuition, my sense of the market, and my vision for what I wanted Moz and the product to be. And, for you know many years at the early stages, that was a very successful strategy. I think I had my, you know, finger deeply on the pulse, and then I got both cocky and greedy, um, and a, I got a lot of funding. <laughs> and th- those three are a recipe, a combination of a recipe for disaster. <laughs> so, you know, I I was very confident in 2012 that I knew exactly where our market was going. Not not that I knew what it wanted but that I thought it would want this thing in the very near future. So my theory, my grand theory was that, you know, a few years in the future, maybe 2013, 14, 15, SEO would stop being a siloed practice. There wouldn't be like SEO consultants and an SEO professional, but rather that organic web marketing of all kinds, search and social and content would all kind of come together and be managed by you know, a team or a person in lots of organizations. That was a broken, broken, broken ass theory. <laughs> <laughs> uh, turned out to be super not true. Today, SEO is more specialized and siloed than ever. Social media is more specialized and siloed than ever. Content marketing has become siloed and specialized. Email marketing has remained siloed and specialized. PR has remained siloed and specialized. Like These things have not merged, and I, I'm pretty sure they're not going to. What I didn't realize was that we did not have to lead the market. We can follow it. And I think that is generally t- true of marketing and analytics tools. You don't have to create the market. You just have to follow where it goes. You know, you don't have to do analytics for Kick if you think Kick is going to be big in a few years. Wait for Kick to get big, then start doing analytics for it, right? No one needed Facebook analytics in 2007. Everyone needed it in 2010. Right. You can wait to see what that market looks like. So I, I think that was a big, big mistake. And <laughs> that's, that's what happens, right? We uh, we raised a big funding round that year, uh, $18 million in 2012, and, you know, grew the team massively. I had us build this huge product that, you know, took two years to build and launch. And then, of course, was just terribly received by the market because it wasn't what anyone wanted. Mm-hmm. And... Yeah, we spent a bunch of years after that trying to untangle all that.
0: Got it. So can you maybe explain what that pivot looked like from trying to play the future game to then refocusing on the now and what the process then looked like you had to put in place to make sure that what was being done aligned with the current market demand?
1: Sure. I mean, I think it was mostly a philosophical approach, right? It was about let's stop saying we think we know what the market will want in the long-term future and that it will turn into this other thing. And let's serve the market as it exists today. So that means you know, interviewing lots of customers and watching people use our products, watching them use our competitors' products, uh, seeing what they're doing with that data and information, and then having insight into, hey, here's this process that everyone in the SEO world is doing. I'll give an example. So this was starting in the middle of 2015 and then we launched the product in the early part of 2016 it was a product called keyword explorer and basically you know i go to all these conferences and events and i spend tons of time with people who do seo all day every day and one of the things i observed was keyword research was like this fundamentally manual ugly process where you know an seo professional would go they'd go to like adwords and they'd go to uber suggest and they'd go to Google search. And, you know, they'd use all these different tools. They'd build a huge list of keywords. Then they'd put that into Excel or Google Docs, you know, a Google spreadsheet. Then they'd create all these columns for like, okay, what's the volume and how difficult is it going to be to rank for this? And how much of a click-through rate do I think this, this search result gets? And where do I currently rank for this or not? And how important is this keyword to my business? And then they'd take all those columns of data and build some sort of formula to prioritize the keywords. And then they'd go check and see if they had content already targeting those terms and phrases. And if they didn't, they'd prioritize building that manual process. Like you can imagine this takes weeks and weeks to do this keyword research, right? To figure out, you know, what does my audience want? And then which one should I target first, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, you know what? We can do that for them. No one should ever have to build that in Excel. Like, you should be able to search for a keyword, click a bunch of check marks on, like, yes, I like all these terms and phrases, add them to a list, get all your metrics right there automatically, sort and prioritize, you know, add your importance scores, and then boom, you have your list prioritized with all the charts and graphs that you want right there. That can turn weeks of work into an hour of work. Mm. And, you know, that's the product we built. And I think that was probably one of, if not Moz's, most successful launch ever. And Keyword Explorer today is beloved, right? It's kind of like one of the industry standards. A lot of the people who use it say it's their favorite product for Moz and their favorite SEO product at all. And I, I think that's great, right? Like that's exactly what we should be doing is right. figuring out what processes we can automate for folks, how we can help them, you know, save time and save energy and be smarter through data and and automation. Yeah. And so I I hope that's something that we keep doing, right? Spend lots Mm -hmm. of time with customers, spend lots of time with these professionals, figure out what what they're doing that they shouldn't have to do and, and then build it for them. Yeah. And I think that's definitely worth reiterating
0: just that the refining of the focus of on testing to gain the insight necessary to then create that experience that aligns with what that market wants. When you identify that pain point was that something that you were just using it and spent more time using it, or you had people in for focus groups and you're watching them use it, or is it just more of an analytical tool? What
1: was kind of the thing that helped spark that insight? The thing that sparked the insight was I went, this was in, what was that, the end of 2014, 2013 or 2014? I went and was the CEO of another company for a week. <laughs> this is going to sound crazy. We, we did this thing called CEO swap. So, this is a friend of mine. And a colleague, uh, Will Reynolds. He runs a company called Sear Interactive. It's a, you know, a marketing web marketing and SEO uh, agency based in Philadelphia. He basically came to Seattle, lived at my apartment, you know, walked to Moz every day, and was our was our de facto CEO, right? And I, I ran it by my board, made sure they were cool and comfortable with it, and Will ran Moz for a week, and I did I did likewise. I went to Sear. And I was CEO of Seer for a week, not just in name, like we were answering each other's emails. We were sending tweets from each other's accounts. I think I had a conversation with his mom because his mom called. (laughs) (laughs) I took his dog to work. You know, someone on his team actually uh, uh, resigned that week. So, you know, asked me for a coffee meeting and she was like, well, you're the CEO, so I guess I'm giving my notice to you. (laughs) It's that kind of thing. and. Uh, That experience really kind of put me in touch with what the SEO world was like and what consultants were dealing with and how their processes were working and what was a struggle for them. And then I spent probably the next uh, year, a good part of the next year, at conferences and events talking to a lot of people about specifically keyword research stuff and doing a bunch of investigation and then designing this product uh, that we eventually built. Gotcha. So you did a – you literally – put yourself in the
0: other person's shoes in your customer's shoes. Heck yeah. Um, to get to get that insight. That's that's awesome. It's one of the greatest testing stories I've ever heard.
1: <laughs> you gotta have a lot of trust in your friend to have him come run your company for a week. But yes. Absolutely. But I mean the, the insight it what it produced, I mean you can't argue with that, right? It was it was an awesome experience, a really powerful one. Certainly if you know if you can find the freedom and flexibility to do that kind of an exchange, I think it's amazing.
0: Hmm. Very cool. And so, you know, with that change, that insight, you know, now fast forwarding to you now current state and this mobile trend happening and and now things are just happening a lot faster and, and there's a lot more things that are searchable and now there's mobile being indexed by Google. And so all this crazy stuff is happening. You know, how has that impacted Moz?
1: Well, I mean, the way I think about it is this. I, I remember I was talking to another entrepreneur who's in our space basically building SEO software. Mm-hmm. And what he said is most startups have this goal of achieving product market fit, right where you're, where your product matches what your market needs and then from there you grow and scale. And what he said was uh, in the SEO software world, there is no product market fit. You're only ever chasing the latest thing that Google's doing and the latest things in searcher behavior. And the latest things that are happening in all these web traffic channels, I think that is a great description. There's no product fit in SEO. There's just the constant pursuit. And so for us, you know, you say, oh, well, now there's all these crazy things happening. Yeah, but Jordan, there has never been a time in the SEO world where you would say, oh, nothing's really happening. It's pretty quiet. That's a good point. You know, Google has never not been changing at at least the pace they're changing at right now, right? So that is, for us, just a a constant practice of pursuing and trying to go. You know, we're not skating to where the puck is going. Mm -hmm. We are skating behind the puck and we'll always be skating behind the puck because we don't want to try and anticipate what Google might do that will lead us down very bad roads instead we follow where they're where they're going and it tends to be the case that the rest of the market right the the world of SEO agencies and consultants professional in-house professionals all these folks they are you know 95 percent of them or more are also chasing that puck and so what they need are tools that help them
0: mm-hmm so, you know, you mentioned something earlier on about visitor engagement, how that's connected to the lifetime value of the customer. And I'm curious to get your your perspective on how with mobile, how now where there's this increased engagement, there's increased opportunity to engage with people, how that now can relate with like Twitter being indexed and and some other things that can be indexed. You know, how how is this engagement
1: changing the way you guys are approaching SEO? To be honest, not too much. Uh, so you know, Twitter is present in a you know a limited number of Google search results. I think uh, I probably actually have the data for you right here. Let me take a look. Cool. So we run a uh, we run a tool called Mozcast, and what Mozcast does is it's sort of like a weather reporting tool on what's happening in Google at any given time. And so I can tell you. You know, we monitor tens of thousands of results and tweets appear in 7.1% of all the search results that we monitor. So that is fairly significant, but not massive, not huge. Uh, images, for example, an image block appears in 12.4%. You know, AdWords, you know, Google ads appear in 52%. Review stars appear in 36%. So gives you sort of a sense. The local packs with the map, that appears in about 15%. I would say all of these different features are things that you certainly have to monitor, right? And our software does that. That's something we had to build a few years ago where we started monitoring not just, you know, what are the 10 blue link style SEO looks like, but what does it look like to get into knowledge graph or image blocks or, you know, news results, featured snippets, local packs, et cetera, and then try and illustrate those to folks as they're tracking their keywords and giving them that sense of like, hey... You know, you're tracking these five hundred keywords and in seventy-five of them, you know, there's a a local pack. And so you should probably be thinking about local and maps SEO and how you can get into those types of results.
0: Got it, got it. So I guess, you know, it's the game's always been about being found and being heard. And I think just now it's become a lot easier for just an individual with their phone to be found and heard. And so I guess as these platforms integrate more or become more integrated and Information is on all of them, you know. I guess what do you see the future looking like with some of these platforms becoming more integrated? Let's see.
1: I might challenge the early part of your statement there. Okay, totally. Which is, I actually think that the more accessible content becomes, and the more the more anyone can be, you know, an influencer or a star on all of these networks, uh, the harder it becomes to do so. And that is because the signal-to-noise ratio gets much tougher and the pickiness of audiences gets much bigger, right? So like, mm-hmm. let's say you were a uh, television producer in the early 1980s, right? There's basically five channels that most Americans can watch. You know, there's a little bit of cable and that's emerging, but it's got a small market share and you don't really have to worry about it. If you work for one of the major networks, a mediocre at best television show will get you tens of millions of viewers every week, Mm -hmm. right? Right. Because people just don't have a lot of other things to do. So they're all watching TV and you're good. Now, you work at NBC. It's 2017. What kind of a TV show do you need to reach tens of millions of people in the U.S.? like you need something outstanding, insanely outstanding. Like you need it to have just massive, massive appeal because standing out amidst all of the attention, you know, variables that can call people away. You know, the fact that no one's even watching TV, they're on their phone and sort of the TV zone in the background, right? Uh-huh. Like the degree to which you need outstanding content and the You know, the percentage shot that you've got of standing out is just really low. Right. And I think that's true for content creators and amplifiers and influencers of all kinds, right? So, as anyone with a phone can become an influencer, right, on Instagram or, you know, the next new YouTube star or whatever it is, it becomes dramatically harder to stand out from that noisy crowd. Totally agree. Totally agree. So, I guess with these transitions
0: that have taken place, what are some things that you're anticipating coming? You know, what are, what are some of the additional challenges that you're seeing? Or, yeah, I'm just curious what you what you think is coming next.
1: I mean, I think that this trend is pretty long term, right? In terms of a deficit of attention and a challenge of standing out. I also generally am a believer that it's going to be very hard long term for organizations to build great content brands, I think that that, that will actually make them money. I think that there's going to be two sorts of content creators who are very successful. One is going to be brands that use the, the attention that their content can get them to sell something else. Uh, an example might be Moz itself, right? So, right. You know, Moz produces all this content for free. It's you know, it's a costly venture. There's a, a you know, an audience development team and all this work that goes into creating that content. But Moz can afford to do it and monetize it because it has this software package that it sells to the folks who are most interested in the topic. Right. What would be really hard is launching a pure media-based business in the SEO world and trying to scale that and turn that into something. I think that's for every one Buzzfeed, there's. 100 failed versions of the same thing. The other group that I think will be uh, highly su- highly successful in this are the super specialized content creators who have like a very very unique value proposition and unique skill set. And those are folks like 538, right, where they're data science, data analytics and quality of predictive and analytic data is just remarkable. And so they build this incredibly trusted brand around this specific, you know, niche of essentially sports and politics analysis. And I, I think that those types of models will be successful too. The ones who are caught in the middle are really like, you know, media properties that are big and broad. You know, I think like this is this is weird to say, but like if it weren't for the fact that Donald Trump hates the New York times and the Washington post so much that they would be much less successful businesses right now, <laughs> right? Like they probably have a few hundred thousand to a million extra, extra subscribers simply because those people want to put their dollars toward media that they hope and believe will counteract, you know, the president's weirdness, um, <laughs> <laughs> around all sorts of things. And, and that. I think those types of businesses are really tough to make work. I think it's going to be hard for individual content creators. You know, the I think there's this future uh, that I see that follows what Andrew Chen calls the law of shitty click-through rates. Right. So basically, anytime a new platform, a, a new advertising platform, a new social network, uh, you know, a new opportunity of any kind emerges, initially there's a lot of opportunity. On that network or, or through that system to, you know, not exploit it, but to get a lot of attention without an insane amount of effort. Mm. And then over time, the effort ratio required to stand out from the crowd through that medium or that network, that process becomes more and more difficult. It's a lot like an ad platform where, you know, you get saturation. So if you were buying ads on Facebook in 2010, you were probably seeing, oh, my God, the traffic's so cheap and the ROI is insane and the targeting is just getting better and better. And today, if you're investing in Facebook ads, you're like, "Eh, yeah, I'm kind of, you know, barely scraping by because everyone's kind of bid up to the max. And, you know, the traffic costs just about as much as it returns, maybe a few pennies less, but it's not very ROI positive, not like it used to be. That is true in organic attention-getting platforms, and you know, and virtually every form of content as well. And so, you have to have a either a phenomenal monetization engine or a phenomenal unique value proposition to stand
0: out. I love that; those are two awesome takeaways. And I just want to be mindful of your time, Rand. So, I'd love to to move into what's some of the cool things you're working on that you want everyone to check out.
1: I mean, at Moz, uh, you know, some of the big things are building a better system for keyword research through URLs, right? So like a lot of the ways that marketers and um, everyone who's interested in, you know, what are people searching for on Google doing, we support that pretty well with, you know, keywords today. But it'd be great. I, I think our hope is that you can plug in your website or one of your competitors' websites or any random website on the internet. And we can tell you, here's all the keywords that they rank for that might be interesting to you. You know, and here's your competitors. Here's how visible they are versus you, that kind of stuff. Uh, so that's that's coming in a few months. Really cool. Yeah, we've been making some good progress with the Moz bar, which is our plugin for uh, Google Chrome, the Google Chrome browser. A lot of people love that. I think there's like 400,000 installs now. Uh, so th- that one's been particularly well upgraded and optimized lately, and is is working nicely. Outside of Moz, my wife and I just invested in a really awesome uh, company or, or fund called uh, Backstage Capital. And uh, Backstage is someone I'm I'm truly excited about. Arlen Hamilton is the um, managing director there. And Backstage invests, uh, at least in this latest fund, invests in uh, founders, exclusively women of color founders. I love that initiative. And I think that you know, the startup world is overwhelmed by uh, by white dudes, um, <laughs> and we're good. Like, you don't right. need too many more of us. Certainly, we don't need any more legs up. Um, we've got plenty of, of systemic and structural advantages uh, baked in already, and so I'm psyched to see that. I, I really look forward to the kinds of creative companies that come out of that. You know, they're if you look at the portfolio, it's just like a bunch of companies that you never would have seen out of, like, Y Combinator or... Um, uh, you know, potentially even tech stars or something like that. So that that's real cool. And then I'm working on a book that's coming out. Nice. Should be about the middle of next year uh, that is around, you know, uh, transparency and avoiding some of the uh, mistakes that conventional startup wisdom biases us toward. Cool. You know, I think that the culture of Silicon Valley and venture capital can just really tear at a founder's instincts and can make us do some pretty weird things that we that we probably shouldn't be doing, but that we think we're supposed to do because, you know, Facebook did them and Dropbox did them and Google did them. And and we're not necessarily those companies. Uh, so I'm trying to make that a little more transparent and and illustrate that through some of the mistakes and successes that Moz has made. Well that's awesome.
0: And I'm going to link to all these in the show notes pages for everyone to check out and I'll make sure to uh, keep up with you, Rand, so that as you're getting closer to some of these releases, I can let everyone know about them to to check them out. And I just want to thank you again, you know, for taking the time to chat with us. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure,
1: Jordan. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Hey, thank you for listening. Make sure to tune in this Friday for this week's guest resources from our rapid fire question round. And I'm always happy to be a resource in any way that I can. So visit EmergeMobileFirst.com to reach out to me directly or for additional insights, resources, and bonus tools that can help catapult your organization to the next level. Until next time, think mobile first.